wonderful. Well, we are involved right now in a series looking at the topic called Beyond Death, Beyond Death, What Happens After We Die. And uh, it was R.T. Kendall that when he wrote his tract, to take out for evangelism on the streets while R.T. Kendall was a minister of between 20 and 25 years or so at Westminster Chapel. Every Saturday that he was in England, he would go out in the streets with a tract and witness to people. And when he wrote this tract, in this tract, he said that the gospel primarily addresses what happens to you after you die. And the publishers went back to him and said, R.T., surely you mean during our life as well. Why are you saying that the gospel primarily answers the question, what happens after you die? We think you should take it out. People want something that's relevant for now. And R.T. responded that the fact that the very fact was is that the gospel does more than anything address what happens when you die. That's what it's all about. And we looked at what happens when we die. And you can always go on our internet, our media center, and look at some of the services that we've done previously if you weren't around. I began by looking at the immortality of the soul, the spirit, and how our bodies are mortal, but we were created spiritually immortal. That means that when you die, you don't cease to exist. You don't go into some soul sleep, but when you die, What simply happens is your spirit is separated from your body. Your body that is at the moment mortal will go into the grave or whatever. But your spirit, the moment you die, you will not lose consciousness. People tend to think, oh, what will happen after that? Your spirit will be, you will be as conscious the moment after you die as you were before. Perhaps more conscious if you've been suffering from some mental illness or something that's getting in the way. The question is, not after you die, do you not exist? But the question is, where do you go? Where does your spirit then, then go? And we are addressing um, some of those issues. We, we looked at the fact that though your body is mortal, so when the Bible speaks about mortals, it's speaking about our bodies. It is sown mortal. But it will be raised again, won't it, when Jesus returns? And it'll be raised what? Well done. Immortal. Your body is mortal, it will decay, you will die if Jesus tarries. But on the day of resurrection, your immortal body, your immortal spirit will be reunited with your immortal body. When Jesus returns, it will be the resurrection of all believers from the past. And those that are alive will be caught up and we will be glorified. Our bodies will be raised immortal or if we're alive, become immortal in a twinkling of an eye, 1 Thessalonians 4 says. And our immortal spirits will be reunited with now, clothed with an immortal body. We're going to exist forever, friends. And even the unbeliever, they will not be raised when Jesus returns But at the end of the end of times, after Jesus has reigned and ruled a thousand years on the earth, there will be a great white throne resurrection, the second resurrection revelation speaks about. And then all those that died in unbelief, they will be raised. They are already existing as a spirit in hell, but their bodies will also be raised and their spirits that are eternal, will be now clothed with their bodies that will also be indestructible, and they will find their place in the lake of fire. 
We looked at the believer's judgment last week and spoke about the beamer's seat, if you were here, and how the believer has already passed from judgment to life. We're ne- if we believe in Jesus, we-, we never have to worry about going to hell. We have already been pronounced not guilty. You have been justified. For those that believe in Jesus, you have been set free from the penalty of sin and death. You will live forever. And for the believer... Death is not to be feared. Now, I know in our, in, in our frailty, in our human form, we still struggle with fearing death. I understand that. But we shouldn't. Paul says, it's better for me to be absent from the body because I'm with the Lord. What that, and, and he said, you know, I, I'm wrestling. I want to stay here to help you in the ministry, but my heart wants to go and be with the Lord. It's better for you that I stay, but it's better for me that I go. What a revelation of heaven he had. And so the moment a believer dies, your spirit goes to be with the Lord in heaven. You're with him awaiting that time when your body will be reunited. And so today I want to begin to talk about the subject of hell. And I will be going line on line on this doctrine over the next few weeks. But I wanted to bring uh, a a beginning teaching that's more of an introduction. Otherwise, you get too deep too quick. You hear what I'm saying? And um, the title of my message today is one of the words that's used for hell in the New Testament. The title of my message today is Gehenna. Gehenna. There's a number of words that are used for hell in the New Testament that Jesus has used. One is Gehenna, Another one is Hades. There's another one in the New Testament called Tartarus. And and we'll come through all those, Shoal, we'll come through all those different words in the right time. But today I just want to focus on one, an introduction. It was interesting as I was writing this teaching yesterday, I just popped out to get some milk at Tesco's Express, just down the road. And as I I walked into Tesco's Express, my, my, my eyes just looked at some of the magazines that were there. And I was surprised to see a copy of the New Scientist uh, special issue. I don't know if you can get a bit closer on that on a camera. It might be difficult for you. And I noticed that the New Scientist's current, um, the current edition of the New Scientist is called a special issue, Death, Inescapable, Universal, and Thank You, and Uplifting. I thought, well, that's interesting, seeing as we're speaking about what happens to you after death. So I had a look, and um, it's, it's very interesting. There's lots of good articles on death. Of course, you, you have to take the new, new scientist naturalistic bias into account because the new scientist assumes that even if science points towards the supernatural, they assume that there is no supernatural. But having taken the new scientist's philosophical bias into consideration. There were some interesting things. Uh, There's a number of articles. I thought I'd read some things that are current. Death, the only certain thing in life is that it will, sorry, the only certain thing in life is that it will one day end. That knowledge is perhaps the defining feature of the human condition. And as far as we know, we alone are capable of contemplating the prospect of our demise. Over the next 12 pages, we explored the implications, the shifting definition of death, how knowing that we will die gave birth to civilization, uh, etc., etc. And there's a number of interesting articles 
that, that are in here if, if you're interested in science and things like that. But I, I saw a few quotes. One quote in one of the articles was, conscious death, conscious death, remi conscious death reminders, on the other hand, stimulate a more considered response, leading people to reevaluate what really matters. The more we actively contemplate mortality, the more we reject socially imposed goals such as wealth or fame and focus, instead on personal growth or the cultivation of positive relationships, which suggests we do not think about death enough. And so in that article, they were saying some of the things that we were talking about last week, where I was saying, you know, what happens after our death is important because what happens after our death should define how we live right now. Because our time on the earth together is but a moment in eternity. But a moment. Yet how we live on earth, the decisions and choices that we make on earth in this tiny life, all flesh is of grass. The flower fades and withers. Your life is like the dew in the morning. It's gone by the noon time. And the choices and decisions that we make in this life will determine our experience after life for eternity. And so we were saying that a healthy understanding of what the Bible teaches about the afterlife will cause us to reconsider how we're living this life. And I thought that was interesting that they were saying the same thing too. Well, they weren't talking about afterlife. They were just saying, when you think about death, it brings everything into a fine focus of what, is, what really matters and what really doesn't matter. Another um, one that I, I, I'll read to you and then, then I'll move on was a whole article on not fearing death, but the whole premise of this article was you don't have to fear death because at death you become nothing. You were nothing, you'll become nothing. Why are you fearing it? And it's trying to help us deal with the fact that in this unbelieving way that, hey, you know, nothing's going to happen after you die. And the author says this, but that's not quite right either. First of all, I believe that immortality would not be good for us. To be condemned to live forever would be a punishment, not a blessing, so fear is not appropriate. It's amazing how this world, or a lot of this world, either assumes that when they die, nothing will happen to them, it'll, it'll be painless, there'll be no existence afterwards. But it's also interesting how if you go to many funerals up and down the countries, even if people are not religious in any way, how people automatically assume that if there is a heaven, their mom, dad, brother, sister, cousin, friend is there. If you notice that, they just, it's just an assumption. Nobody thinks, many of these people don't even think about God, but when they come to the funeral service, it is assumed that if there is a heaven, that person's going to be there. After all, they were such a wonderful father, kind sister, loving friend, and, and we cherished them, so obviously God cherishes them. The assumption that everybody goes to heaven brings me to the beginning of this teaching about the doctrine of hell. I've already said that when you die, it's your body that is mortal that will decompose and grow into the grave, but the, but the moment of death... Your spirit that is eternal, it's where that, where that experiences itself. Is it heaven or is it hell? And not only is there a lot of denial about hell in secular circles or in common British circles, you know, nobody even thinks they're going to hell unless you're, unless you're a terrible person. 
Isn't it funny how, you know, everybody thinks that Jimmy Savile will definitely be in hell at the moment. Nothing's been proven, but things aren't looking good, are they? And you, and you, and you can see the way that people respond on, on, you know, on the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail is this incredible thing if you watch it online, because every article has a whole number of responses. And if you think a response is good, you can tick it. And the more people tick it, the higher it goes up. And if you don't like what they say, you can read it, and then the red then that'll take it down. And it's fascinating to see the sort of response of usually Middle England to what's going on, 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 in, on in, in the world t today. And, um, you know, we say, oh, Jimmy Savile, if there is a hell, that's where he's going to go. And, and we make these judgments of, of who's going to go to hell. And if anybody went to hell, they would be, have to be pretty nasty, in our opinion. They'd have to get lots of reds in the Daily Mail um, to, to go to hell. If you get lots of green ticks, you're definitely a candidate for heaven. Well, that's what Middle England says. But there is a denial of hell. There is a, 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 a also a recoiling from hell, which I thoroughly understand, not only outside the church, but inside the church. At the moment, the doctrine of hell, in my opinion, is the most attacked truth in the Bible today, in the believing church. There's nothing that is more attacked, pillared, uh, in the doctrines, in evangelical doctrine today, than the doctrine of everlasting hell, everlasting perdition. People don't like it. People are uncomfortable with it. Uh, William Booth prophesied this. He said this, William Booth, the founder of the um, Salvation Army, he said this, the principal danger of the 20th century will be a religion without the Holy Spirit, Christians without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, that means being born again, politics without God, and a heaven without a hell. Robert Browning, the uh, great poet, said this, there may be a heaven but there must be a hell. I think people would, would usually reverse that. Well, there may be a hell, but there must be a heaven. But Robert Brownin said, there may be a heaven, but there must be a hell. What did he mean by that? When he saw the horrors of life, the injustice and the wickedness that so often, especially the secular Western world, tries to shield themselves from the reality of human evil, by cocooning themselves in entertainment, in wealth, and whatever, in whatever they've got. Robert Browning said, I'll tell you what, there may be a heaven, but I've seen life. And, and what I've seen, the evil that I've seen, there must be a hell for justice to prevail. And I thought that was a very interesting uh, quote. Here's a quote from Charlie Peace. He was a, a murderer in the late 1800s. He was in Leeds jail, and he was just going to be hanged. And he had a discussion about his soul with the chaplain who witnessed to him and told him about heaven and about hell. And he said this to the chaplain before he was hanged. Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say you believe, even if England were covered in broke, broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, even need be on my hands and knees, and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like this. Powerful thoughts, isn't this? So there are the questions, do all people go to heaven? Is there a hell? If it does, does it 
last forever. Now, few people speak and preach about hell today. And if, if they do, they, they, they are often, well, sometimes the people that do preach on hell do it very ungraciously. Have you ever seen someone walking down uh, Oxford Street with a big placard saying, turn or burn, or some sort, and it's almost like they're out there and they can't wait to tell you who's going to hell. And usually it's not just those that don't go to church, it's those that don't go to their church. And um, I, I, I'm not, and those people, they are imbalanced and, and they act, they're actually toying with truths that are very weighty and shouldn't be utilized or misused like that. But then you get a whole host of people that no longer want to preach about hell and don't think it's important. I, the general superintendent, John Glass, of our Elim movement was with us a few weeks ago speaking to our leaders, and he was talking about how he'd met a pastor who told the, the ministers in his church that they were forbidden to speak on the topic of hell or judgment because people's lives are hellish enough as it is. Interesting where people come from. Also, uh, a lot of people are believing in the message of grace, and we are a grace-believing church. Uh, Colin is always uh, on the forefront of preaching the grace of God without works, isn't he? I myself wrote a book called No More Law. I mean, you don't get more grace than that, do you? No more law, not a little bit of law, not partly, not just five, no commandments, no law, no grace. But sometimes this itself, this grace message, some people go beyond the Bible revelation and they say, God is so gracious that no one will go to hell. How can a God of love allow anybody to go to hell? They say that hell is incompatible with, with love. After all, we wouldn't send anybody to hell and, and we don't love very much and a God of love would, would never do that. They say that hell is incompatible with justice. I remember one senior minister of a denomination saying this, how can 70, 80 years of sin equal punishment forever and ever and ever? Surely that's not fair. And we will look at some of these questions and these philosophical questions over the next few weeks, but I'm just raising, raising them now. We have to remember that the gospel is good news because without it, it's bad news. You only have to look at the letter of Paul to the Romans. And uh, we know that in Romans, well, Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, we have the good news of the gospel. Paul says that the gospel right at the beginning is the power of God unto salvation for all that believe. But you read Romans 1, 2, and three, you read that before you get to how to be saved and the good news is unpackaged. You read Romans 1, 2, and 3. It is not pretty reading because it talks about the judgment of God. It says, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. And it talks about this ungodliness and it talks about how God has given over the ungodly to their sin. It's interesting on an aside how God judges sin. Some people think that 
when God judges sin, he sort of like throws lightning bolts down and he's going to destroy you and he's going to burn you and he's going to... Actually, how God judges sin is this. He simply, simply allows you to become as evil as your nature really is. Three times in Romans chapter 2 it says his, his response to evil and sin was to give them over to their own sin. In other words, he takes his hand of restraint off them. You look at history. You, you look at the fall of the great mighty empires. Their fall and decay is usually linked to what we would call gross sin. I mean, the rise of the Roman Empire, I'm not lauding the Roman Empire, but the rise of the Roman Empire was built on discipline, on respect of fathers. It was a disciplined in its own way, not Christian, moral. And, and it rose to the decaying of the other empires, the Greek Empire. But the decay of the Roman Empire was, was firstly moral, then military. And uh, people are concerned about America and whether it will continue to be a strong nation as it was. And one of the great concerns is the moral decline that's there. God's judgment is often just to let people... It's almost like the people are saying, we want to do evil. We want to throw off the, the bonds of morality. We want to throw off these chains. We want to do what we want to do. And God says, the greatest punishment that I can do is let you do what you really want. God takes his restraining hand off and he lets the wickedness of the wicked, unregenerate heart loose, loose. And so the gospel has always been good news on the backdrop of bad news. Again, John Glass was with us and he was speaking about the gospel and he was speaking about hell. And he said this, it's a little bit like a diamond, the gospel, a beautiful shining diamond. And if you put it in the jeweler's window, you're not going to put a beautiful shining diamond on a brilliant white piece of paper, are you? Why? Because you won't see the brilliance of the diamond against a white paper. If you want to see the brilliance and the beauty and the shining of the diamond, you put it on a black cushion. And the black cushion contrast will allow you to see the brightness of the diamond. It's the same with the gospel. When we truly understand the darkness that we have been saved from, the gospel becomes more beautiful, more precious, more amazing than you can ever imagine. And so, today we're going to begin an introduction to the doctrine of hell. And the, the, the major views against the doctrine of hell and the doctrine of eternal punishment uh, there are two main ones, and we'll deal with this in the coming weeks a little bit more in detail. The first one is called universalism. Universalism. I will be going deeper into these ones. It's an introduction today. Universalism, universalism is the belief that everyone will finish up in heaven in the end. All will ultimately be saved. Whatever happens, God's goodness and God's love could ne never tolerate uh, everlasting hell, and therefore God's love will win in the end. We'll be looking at this because what people do is that they misinterpret what God's love is biblically, and they forget that God is love, but he's also just. Uh, he, 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 he is also powerful. And so they, 
misinterpret what love is, and we'll look at that. The second is called annihilationism. Annihilationism. And what this says is that only the saved will continue to exist, that sometime at death or soon after, those that don't believe will be annihilated. They will cease to exist. When they speak about hell, if they do speak about hell, they say that hell's fire incinerates rather than incarcerates. In other words, the fires of hell will totally destroy and annihilate the unbelievers so that they no longer exist. We'll look at that. And so people are having these conversations about, is there a hell? Is there not a hell? Is it eternal? Is it consistent with God's nature? These things we'll unpackage in the next few weeks in a deeper way. But what I wanted to say today is this. If we're talking about the nature of God and his love and his justice, and is it compatible with the idea of everlasting punishment, of everlasting damned souls in everlasting flames, it's a question of who knows the Father most and his character. Now, we know that if you want to know the Father, you go to the Son. It's the Son that knows the Father's character better than anybody in the world. So you might say, I think God is like this, and I might say, I think God is like that. But in the end, what Jesus thinks God is, his Father, that's who he truly is. Now, this is important because Jesus Christ has the greatest grasp of God's love, of God's justice, and of God's power. And so, if we want to understand the doctrine of hell, we should go to the one that knows the Father the greatest, Jesus himself. And the interesting thing about the doctrine of hell is who teaches most about it in the Bible. And if you don't know it already, it's Jesus himself in the Gospels, and we also see it in Revelation, is Jesus himself that teaches most on the doctrine of hell. Who goes there? What its nature is? How long it lasts? Jesus himself takes time to teach on these things. You can see the, the doctrine of everlasting punishment in Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, for example, and, and other places. But it's Jesus that teaches most about hell. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like he was saying, this is such an important subject that I'm going to make sure that I teach it myself. And remember, when Jesus taught, he said, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, he was saying, I'm not going to deceive you. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to talk in double speak. I'm going to speak to you in plain words, and you can trust my plain words. I think it's amazing how many people and preachers that reject the doctrine of everlasting hell, they don't reject the doctrine of everlasting heaven, and both those teachings came from Jesus. I mean, for example, in John 14, 2, let's have a look at that, and we will be after teaching on hell, we're going to be teaching on heaven and some of the great things to look forward to. We don't want anyone to go to hell. That's why we teach it. And Robert Sledden will be with us in November, and we've asked him at the five o'clock to do a whole teaching on his, on, on his teaching, I Saw Heaven. As a young eight-year-old boy, he was caught up into heaven, 
and had an experience of heaven. And I think that would be lovely to hear from him, don't you? John 14, chapter 2. Now, he's not speaking about hell here. He's speaking about heaven. John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is saying, look, if you believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going now. I'm going to prepare a place for you in heaven. And then he says, look, if it weren't so, I would tell you that it's not so. So here, Jesus is saying, you're listening to me about heaven. I'm not lying. I want you to trust me. When I'm talking about the mansions in heaven and the glory I'm preparing for all that believe, if it wasn't like it is, I wouldn't say it. And if it wasn't like it is about heaven, almost, if I can say this, how much more wouldn't he say it if it wasn't true about hell? Because if it's heaven's a bit different or that, well, whatever. But surely hell is, in a sense, even more serious that you get your teaching correct on that. You know what I'm talking about? So if he's saying, trust me on my teaching of hell, that no, heaven that no evangelical has a problem about, what about trusting him on the difficult teachings? You know, you only really know if you're a Bible believer when you comes to bits in the Bible, you'd rather not believe. I'd rather there wasn't a hell. I would. If I personally could take hell out of the Bible, I would. And you say, well, what does that say? That shows you how finite, immortal, small-minded, and lack of revelation I have about our great sovereign God. That shows you that I am more man-centered than God-centered. And people that lift up man rather than God don't like doctrines that lift up God rather than man. We like to bring God down to our own level. I've heard people arrogantly say this, well, if there is a hell, if I get to heaven, and I don't know if I want to now, but if there is a hell, I've got a few things to talk to God about. You've got a few things to talk to God about, my friend? You stand before God, you will be on your face shaking as a dead man. You think you're going to answer back to God? Look what Job went through. If anybody could answer back to, jo to God, it was Job. And when God turned up, Job stopped asking. He just said, it's enough. We need to get back to being God-centered and Bible-centered and understand that so we don't like it. All right, God says, I'll change it for you. No, he doesn't. But preachers have been changing it. Preachers have been manipulating it. So my point here as we move on is this, is that it's Jesus that teaches about hell the most. And therefore, we should take it extra seriously. Most references to hell are in the Gospels or Revelation. And almost all, not all, but almost all knowledge comes from Jesus himself. So, do we bow the knee to him? In fact, we find that it's Jesus himself that will, in the end, pass sentence 
on unbelievers and put them in eternal hell. I mean, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Let's have a look at that. Matthew 25, verse 41. Then, this is Jesus, then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is Jesus talking about a certain kind of people and he is passing judgment on them and he is casting them in to the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't meant for human beings. God, but, but God is Jesus himself. You see, the Jesus that we present, I know that Jesus is love. We could go through all the wonderful passages and, and how sensitive he was for sinners, wasn't he? He loved sinners more than he loved the so-called righteous, yes? We could go through again and again the Zacchaeuses and the prostitutes that got saved and the lepers. We, could, we do that. We do enough of that. But how about the Jesus that casts the unrighteous believer into the lake of fire? Have you got room for that characteristic of Jesus? Or, or shall we get rid of that one and, and make Jesus nice and cuddly, friendly? No, we have to see God who he is in all his love and compassion but also his wrath and holiness against sin. We have to be open to the full Jesus and who he is. Now, I said today that I wanted to, to introduce you to the concept of hell by looking at the picture of Gehenna. Now, I've already said that in the New Testament and the Gospels, different words are used for hell. And sometimes when we read the Gospels, we don't know in the English. It translates Hades, hell. Or it translates what I'm going to look at now, Gehenna, hell. And we don't know which Greek word is being used. It's just translated hell. And we'll look at Hades next week. We'll look at Tartarus. We'll look at Shoal next week and explain those a little bit more. But as introduction, I wanted to, to speak a little bit about one of the words that's used for hell. And that's called Gehenna. G-E-H-E-N-N-A. Gehenna. Gehenna. And um, Gehenna, let me read some scriptures for you where Jesus, where the word hell is actually Gehenna in the Greek. Remember, the New Testament was written in Greek, all right? So here's some passages where when it says hell in your Bible, actually the word is Gehenna, all right? Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Here's some from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22. Matthew 5, 22. But I say to you, that who is ever angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever shall say to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of Gehenna fire. 5.29, and if your right hand offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is profitable for you that your members should one of your members should perish and that not your whole body should be cast into Gehenna. Interesting that it's talking about a body being cast into Gehenna, not just a spirit. That's talking about the day when the unrighteous are raised and their everlasting spirit will now be reunited to an everlasting body for everlasting punishment in Gehenna. Chapter 5.30, if your right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's profitable that you lose one of your members and not that your whole body should be cast into Gehenna. 10.28, Matthew. 
And do not fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Uh, 23.15, I could do some other, I'll just pick a few out. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you go about sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more a child of Gehenna than yourself. Um, Mark, chapter... 9 verse 43, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go into Gehenna, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Matthew 9, 44, where their worm does not die and their fire is not, uh, not quenched. Oh, actually, I'll read the whole thing together. Uh, where their worm does not, sorry, it's better than having two hands to go into Gehenna, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot offends you, cut it off, better to enter the life lame than having two feet to be cast into Gehenna, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Then finally, Luke 12, verse 5, but I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him who after has kill, killed has power to cast into Gehenna. Yes, I say to you, fear him. I've said that there's other words that Jesus uses for hell, but this is Gehenna. Well, what is Gehenna? What does he mean when he's talking about Gehenna. Well, Gehenna is a real place, a real place outside Jerusalem, also called the Valley of Hinnon. And in Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 6, just for your notes for following up, you can read a whole passage about the Valley of Hinnon or Gehenna and how that that valley was, was uh, used for child sacrifice uh, and the worship of Moloch many, many years ago and that God was going to turn that valley of Hinnon or Gehenna in, and turn it into the valley of slaughter, Jeremiah 19.6. Now, in the south gate of Jerusalem, there was a, a gate called the Dung Gate. Have you ever heard of that? Some of you, the Dung Gate. It's called the Dung Gate or the Rubbish Gate because outside that gate was outside Jerusalem, Gehenna, which was a great valley which was the garbage and rubbish dump of Jerusalem. And uh, this is where all the sewage and rubbish was thrown into this valley of Gehenna. It had steep cliffs at the time, and uh, it was constantly ablaze because they were constantly incinerating and burning all the rubbish that was there. It's interesting that Jesus will often use the phrase where, there, where the fire will not be quenched, and where the, the, um, where the worms will not die. And in the Valley of Gehenna, that's exactly what was taking place. The rubbish, the useless rubbish was being burnt, but also, if you know anything about rubbish dumps, you're going to find maggots, aren't you? And I remember once, um, it was my fault, um, I put some chick I got some chicken breasts, which we didn't need anymore, out of date, and I just threw it in the bin on a hot summer day, and it was two weeks until it was going to be. Well, anyway, after a while, my wife sort of went in and said, what's that smell? And the bin was just full of maggots because of that rotten chicken. It was awful. I had to get my mother over to clean it up. <laughs> She's a good mum. True story. So in this valley, there was the fire that was burning, but there was also the decomposing material and the worms and the maggots. The lowest point of this valley was too deep for even the light to penetrate. 
This place was also a horrible place because when corpses were crucified, they were thrown into Gehenna. If Joseph Arimathea hadn't rescued Jesus, Gehenna would have been the place that he would have been logically thrown into as a crucified criminal. But thank God that didn't take place. Judas Iscariot, where he died, the field of blood, that place was part of Gehenna. And uh, so Jesus, when he is referring to Gehenna, it was a place at night. You could go out if you wanted to. You know, I don't know how, how many of you think, hey, let's go out tonight. We're going to go out tonight. We're going to hit the town. Where are we going to go? The rubbish dump. But if you went out at night to see Gehenna, it would just be smoke and fire and stench. It was a horrible rubbish dump with no health and safety or sanity like we might have in, and I find rubbish dumps today even smell, don't they? So why, why is, is Jesus using this word Gehenna? He's using it as a picture of hell. This is one of the phrases of hell. And the thing about hell is that like Gehenna, it's a terrible thing to say, but hell is God's rubbish dump for wasted, lost lives that refused to be saved. It's God's rubbish dump. You see, in Gehenna, everything that was worthless, everything that was broken, everything that was useless, everything that was not needed was thrown into that place where it was consumed with fire or if it was organic by the maggots and the worms. And so our lives, what, why were we born? Why, were, why did God create us? What is your purpose on life? Your purpose is twofold. The great divines, Westminster divines said this. What is the chief end of mankind? In other words, what is the chief purpose of, 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 of humankind, the Westminster Catechism said? What is the chief end of man? Number one, to glorify God. Number two, to enjoy him forever. I'm so glad they put number two in because it's such a revelation. Number one, the chief end, the reason human beings were created was to glorify God. Number two, to enjoy him forever. That means that those that refuse to glorify God or refuse the, the sacrifice that God loved us so much that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Perish is a real word. To perish, what is to perish? I'll go into this in more detail, into the Greek. But, but to perish means to be useless. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, the tap won't turn off? Oh, and the plumber comes and goes, ah, it's the washer. It's perished. The washer's still there, isn't it? But it's become useless. You, you know, you, you, take, you, you look at a, a tire that's gone bald, and you say, what's happened to that tire? It's perished, or it's split, or you've had a puncture, and it's no longer of use for what it was created for. So, for God so, sent his, for God so loved the world that he sent his Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is a picture of Gehenna where everything that was perished was taken. And we see that in some of the things that we've seen, like Mark 9, 48, a common word 
a phrase that Jesus used about Gehenna was, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In other words, Jesus was using this earthly symbol to talk about a spiritual reality. Now, some people say, well, this talk about worms and fire, these are just symbols. Jesus also speaks about being cast into the outer darkness. And, and, and how can you have fire and darkness at the same time? Well, maybe if your eyes are blinded. There's many ways of saying it. But anyway, let, let me. So these are just symbols. Even if the fire and the worm and the darkness were just symbols. Let me say this. If those are the symbols, how much worse must be the reality? So when people say all this talk about hell, flames, fire, all these things, they're just symbols, as if you can dismiss them, I would say this. If Jesus is talking in symbols, then he is softening the reality of what it must be really like. Now, when we speak about Gehenna, uh, we see that there are at least five different aspects of existence in hell. It is a place of physical discomfort. When we, uh, and we will look at Luke chapter 16, verse 19, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. We see that the rich man is in discomfort. There's a high temperature. He's thirsty. He wants a drop of water. Matthew chapter 8, verse 12 gives us a picture. Matthew 8, verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of, of teeth. So there is a, whatever you call a darkness, it's the darkness, the isolation, the symbolism of it. There's no light. The light of the world is not there. It's a place of mental torment. Jesus said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And often we see this phrase used by Jesus about hell. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does that speak about? It speaks about sorrow, but it also speaks about anger, frustration, and resentment. Remember, in hell there is no repentance. And in hell, there is no grace. So, thank God for common grace in the world today. What do you mean by that? So often, human beings aren't as bad as they could be. So often, human beings aren't as bad. So often, you, you can look outside the church, and, and you can rejoice, can't you, in good things. I mean, it's not all doom and gloom. You can see, although humankind has fallen, it's still made in the image of God. And you can still see beauty in a fallen creation, even though you can see horror. And you can still see beauty in fallen man. You can see, you don't have to be a Christian to, to produce a fine work of art. You're made in the image of God. You don't have to be a Christian to do something of great beauty or great sacrifice for somebody else. You're made in the image of God. But all the good that remains in mankind and the world, do you know all that good is God? It's God's influence. It's what we call common grace. It's God. He's not, he's, he's not allowing things to be as bad as they could. But I've already said that when God judges, what does he do? Takes his restraining hand off. 
In other words, thank you, Lord, that Britain is as, isn't as bad as it could be. Thank you, Lord, that, that there's still a restraining influence, dis, no, even outside the church. God, you're still there. There's still a sense of decency in some people. That's you, Lord, not them. But when God takes his restraining hand off and his holding influence, then what happens is the unregenerate nature simply begins to work itself out to its logical conclusion. You say, is that in the Bible? You bet it is. Have you ever heard of a man called Pharaoh? And it says that God hardened his heart. And every time there was a miracle, God hardened his heart. He got harder and harder. Well, what was God doing? Was God getting inside and, and like, I'm going to make you hate me? No, that's not how God hardens. I've mentioned in Romans chapter 2. How does he harden? He just takes his hand off you. I remember an illustration in university. I've got a lot more to teach here. I haven't really, I was going to go through the uh, parable of um, Lazarus and the rich man. And I'd encourage you to read that in Luke 16. But I've got to go where I feel the Holy Spirit taking me as, as, as well. And we've got time to do this. This is the beauty of a teaching service. I remember when I first went to university, just briefly before I, I got saved, I remember that I, I wanted to sin so much. I, there was things I wanted to do. I'm not going to talk about them before you, but, there, but I was a sinner, and I wanted to sin, and I knew what I wanted to do. But every time I tried to do what I wanted to do, God would foil it. He would block it. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't work. All my plans for sin, just everybody else could do what they wanted and get what they wanted, but my, and, and even though I wasn't saved, well, I didn't, you know, I hadn't given my life to the Lord, I knew it was God. And I remember the night that I said, leave me alone. I did. Leave me alone. And you know what? For a season he did. And you know what? I'm still recovering from that season today. <laughs> Seriously. Still being healed from that season today. The worst thing that could ever happen. I wasn't even saved. I hadn't given my life to the Lord, but there were, I knew that something was restraining, something was intervening, something was preventing, and I said, get your hands off me. Well, isn't that what the nations do? Get off us, God. We break your chains. We break your, stay away from us. And the worst thing is when God does that. He takes his hand off, and then what happens? There's no restraining influence. All you're left with is a God-hating, unregenerate, carnal nature, and then it begins to grow the appetite, the flesh, and before you know it, you are consumed by your own unregenerate, unborn-again nature. So imagine if you end up unbelieving and in hell, Every bit of decency that may have been in you on earth. And I've met a, a lot of non-Christians that I feel are far more decent than Christians. I've met non-Christians that are far more decent than ordained ministers. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not, I'm not against the sinner. I love the sinner. I want the saved. I was a sinner. But I'm telling you, as decent and upright as a non-Christian can be on earth, when they end up in hell... There is no seasoning. There is no restraining. There's no, there's no light of creation. There's no influence of God. There is nothing of good or of God or of light or of decency. And in hell, 
the full horror of who you are as an enemy of God, unrestrained, is unleashed. No wonder there's gnashing of teeth. There's no repentance in hell. Hell, the repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit. This has just been a brief introdu- introduction to the word Gehenna and how Jesus used it. Next week, I'm going to do a little bit more structured teaching than I have done today. Uh, we're going to look at the word Shoal. We're going to look at uh, the word Hades. We're going to look at hell. We're going to look at what does it mean when a hell is thrown into the lake of fire. And then we're going to begin to, dis- to look at some of the issues philosophical issues such as how can a God of love ever allow anyone to go into hell? Um, That's not fair to to experience hell forever when you've only lived 70 years. I mean, you know, not not, not even the, the British government would hand out such sentences to anybody. This is ridiculous. And, and all these types of questions that are serious questions and questions that you might have, we are going to go through those once, one step at a time. We are also going to look at the arguments for universalism and demolish them. We're going to look for the ar- arguments for annihilation and demolish them. And then, by, so by the time we get through these, you will not be open or susceptible to the false teaching of the day that is trying to put the church to sleep. On this I end, five minutes late, excuse me. Uh, At least I won't be punished for it unless Colin sees. (laughs) My last point, the devil wants to put the church to sleep to this doctrine. Because if we don't think this doctrine is true, if we believe everybody's going to hell, or at worst, they simply don't exist like they didn't exist before, then the gospel will lose its fervor, we're all settled back, and on one day, it'll be too late when the awful reality of what Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, if it were not so, I would have told you, hits us. And I don't want us before the throne of God on the beamer seat saying, I thought I made it clear to you about the destiny of the lost. I thought I made it clear that I came to earth to die so that people wouldn't go there. Why didn't you believe me? You believed me about heaven. Why not believe me about hell? I look forward to seeing you here next week. God bless you.